Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation podcast co-hosted by myself, Lenya Wilson, a black woman, and Alexandra Tatalia, a white woman. I do think we were talking about you addressing the fact that whether it was race or uh-huh. age, but just being better able to get into your groove in Switzerland than in the States. Let's put it this way. Yes, race had something to do with it because there were jobs that I was applying for in what, right after graduation that that I wasn't getting, right? So one in particular, it, it was so bad. And this is when uh, my parents moved back to Maryland. It was so bad that my father had to talk and ended up meeting this woman who was married to a famous jazz musician at some point. His name is, he's passed away. His name is Horace Silver. Oh. Horace Silver, very famous jazz musician. I know. So the wife, or the ex-wife of Horace Silver met my dad and my dad was telling her about how hard it was for me to get a job. And she was the one who was like, oh, come tell him, come have him talk to me. And she worked at a nonprofit in Washington, D.C., that was sponsored by the Agency for International Development. And she was saying, like, you should try to get this uh, assistant job. Now, the assistant job was a temporary job, or it was uh, from, like, the summer until January, end of January. And it paid $8.31 an hour. This was in 1989. And I remember when I got there, the, the guy who was in charge of it, he didn't want to have anything to do with me. Right. He was like, why is this guy being hired? So in other words, I ran up against the so-called old guard um, from the beginning. The only time that I had success is when I had somebody as a sponsor, officially or unofficially, backing me up. Right, And I did get jobs in Washington, D.C., but they were very much entry-level jobs. You know, I went to D.C. too after college graduation. Well, I only went because my parents lived there, right? So it wasn't like I had a job waiting for me. I wanted to go back to Jersey or go back to New York, but they had already moved away, right? So my whole plan was I need to get to New York so I can, you know, work in the music business or whatever I was trying to do. So DC was the only option because I had no options. Right. I got it. But I would say, look, there are a lot of people that went through the same thing that I have gone through, right? So I don't... Yes, race had something to do with it. And I think also because, you know, I looked so young, much younger than I, you know, than my age. Well, black don't People taking me seriously, right? So, <laughs> and in some respects, they're still not, right? Yeah. But at least I've, I've been able to leverage some things to get <laughs> able to, to, to be able to make a living where at some point, let's just put it this way. Based on what happened to me in the past, I'm still surprised that I have a job. I'm surprised that I'm employed. Not like to the point where I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Right. It, I sometimes think, Dave, you've been employed consistently. That's the thought that comes through my head. Is that imposter syndrome? Like, is that a sense? Like I have my heart like goes out because I have such, I mean, Lenya makes fun of me all the time. Like, cause I have such tremendous imposter syndrome. No, I think no. it's trauma. <laughs> I think it's trauma. Yeah. All right. I hear you. It could be very well be. It could very well be trauma. But that's like important, right? Because in that sense, like that's an important message that with Black Lives Matter this summer, 
That's mm -hmm. been, for me, one of the messages that white people have really needed to hear is that Black people live there. It isn't just all the horrors of being shot or just being questioned or the side glances of just being mm -hmm. Black, but really that sense of almost every day there is some like over the course that cumulative trauma that Black people feel in the United States has an effect that you're saying I feel like I went through trauma. I, I did, right? That's just right. Like I, I, I did. And it's not to downplay that other groups of people don't have trauma. Like, so for example, one of the things that I realized when I moved to New Jersey was that the majority of the people, most of the people that we know from that era, a lot of them were Jewish and a lot of them had parents or grandparents that were in the Holocaust, right? right. So for example, Leah Kramer, she lost all, her, all of her family, right? And I, I now can see the trauma <laughs> that existed with our peers that was handed down or passed down. What's because when I got there, it was like, what is going on? Like the, 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 the kids, the, 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 our peers who were Jewish and some who were not, the energy was so intense. And so there was so much anxiety yeah. Right. And you could feel it, even though you weren't Jewish. Right. Like, wait, what's going on? Right. In the classroom, everywhere. Right. So I think based on what happened to me, I now know that it happens to other people as well. That's not to discount what happens to black Americans, what happens to us in the United States. You know, it's a different kind of thing. But one of the things that separates the experiences is that they left Europe and they went all over the place, right? And yeah. America was a big landing point. Whereas we're still in the United States, most of us. Mm -hmm. Like in other words, we're still not really understanding. We're still coming to grips with the effects of slavery and diaspora. That's still an ongoing conversation. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, if we all decided to move to someplace else, then it would be a different thing. But we're still, we're newbies in the world, on the world stage, right? So when people in Europe meet a Black American person, <laughs> they're, they're surprised, right? They're, there's a lot of what, you know, and then they have to sort of wrap their minds around who is that person? How do they come to be? Yeah. And et cetera, right? What are some of the, do you get questions about what's it like in the States as a Black person? Did you get that too? Me all the time. Like, but there's preconceived notions about when they meet you initially, especially a European person. When a white European person meets a black American, they have preconceived notions based on what they see on TV. And sometimes, especially in my case, it's hard to reconcile what you see on TV and what you think you know a black person is versus what you see in front of you. And I'm sure, David, that you would get that too. I, I mean, I have, but you know what? I don't, when I interact with people, and I probably did this in the United States too, I, I did. But it's, it's multifaceted. There are times where I do not have, or I did not have sort of a high self-esteem or certain things I have very high self-esteem on. There are other things, not so much, right? So when I'm interacting with people, it's really important from the very beginning that they sense that there is something, that they see who I really am from the very beginning, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, it's like, Dave, you can't hold back. You've got to like, you got to lay it out there, lay it now. 
there are other areas, and we talked about this before. This was the last thing that we talked about was knowing your worth. Yeah. Right? Yes. And and being able to ask for certain amounts of money. Now, in that realm, then there were perhaps challenges for me. Yeah. But once I would get a job or, or you know, had to introduce myself, this is in the United States and even here, I have problems with letting people know who I am and, and et cetera. So I don't focus on what their reaction is as much. But let's say if I'm negotiating a salary or something yeah. now, then it gets a little, then it can be, and it has been in the past, shaky. a little shaky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I and, and there are reasons for that, right? There are reasons for that. Yeah. It can be tricky. It can be tricky. And there's another area, and, and Lenny, I don't know if you, I mean, what your point of view on this is. One of the reasons why I went to law school was that I knew having access to lawyers was important, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we, we realized in law school was that in order to get a lawyer, sometimes you have to be, you have to have some means, like some way you have to be connected yeah. in order to get the best lawyer, right? So there's this whole way that I was not keyed into critical, what, what I thought were critical communities to be successful, right? And being and having access and knowing lawyers was a key element of being able to move in a certain way. And still, let's say if something happened to me today, I still would have a hard time finding a lawyer. It's oh, not like these yeah. people are. It's, it's not like these people are part of my solid community, right? Like I went yeah. to law school, but these are not people I talk to every day on the phone. That's even true for me, and I'm a law professor. I mean, that's the joke, right? Eric and I, you know, we don't really talk about this often but you know we were together for 12 years we broke up we got back together got married and then got divorced and then got back together again so but when we were divorced when we were divorcing we couldn't afford lawyers you know right, we, right. so, so like, you're, hitting, you're hitting the nail on the head you're hitting the nail on the head because here you are you know you're in this environment where you're being educated but for a fact if you had to pick up the phone tomorrow right? To find somebody, who would you find, right? And I think that's one of the things that delineates or separates the people who would normally be in law school. Right. Versus sort of the new wave of people that are in our generation who have been able to have, you know, access to to, to law. Right. And I get it. Law. I mean, I'm still like, I own my privilege, like, because I could find a, an attorney. I have the skill set. And even though it's not in my immediate community, obviously, I have easy outreach to find an attorney. I'm way better off than 90% of the people. Because if you take away all my education, you take away my community, how would I find somebody? You know what I mean? Like, how would you find somebody? And then the idea that an attorney... Well, and this is what starts to get wrong in the States. I don't know what works in Europe, but here students have, I have students who have $300,000 in student loan debt coming out of law school Mm -hmm. and they maybe want to do public interest or they want to be like a middle class. They want to help the middle class in some Mm -hmm. way. They want to be a family attorney. They want to put out a shingle, but they have 
$300,000 in student loans they have to pay back. So they need to go get the most high paying job they can. And then all of a sudden they need to charge 400, 500 an hour when it comes time in order to make their payments to have their barely middle-class life. And then still they're not reachable. That's what's wrong. Like I can't tell you how many first generation people of color in my law school class who say, I really want to help my community. And then I ask the next question, how much student loan? What's the student loan? And they all, it's all six digits. And it's. Well, I look at it this way, right? In Europe, they don't charge that much money for school, right? I mean, it's a couple thousand. And that's even including law school and all the others. It's not the same system. We don't have the same system. But I will say what has to happen, and this is sort of in, in line with my thinking that I laid out when we were talking before, which is if you look at it from an individualistic perspective, which is, okay, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to do this. I'm going to become this attorney. I'm going to then, of course, it's a heavy burden to to take on that kind of debt. But people have to become more creative in getting to where they want to go. And that's why it's it's very important to know from the very beginning, as early as you can possibly know, what you want, who you are, what you want, and, and where you want to go, because you don't want to waste time. And I think that you know, the way that the, 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 the old guard does it is that they would join up and become partners in a firm you know what i mean like they'd be working together or and those kinds of skills i don't think this is just my opinion we have not had the years and women as well minorities have not had the years of being able to create these types of entities or these types of businesses we haven't had we just come to the table right so there's got to be more than one way than just saying, okay, I'm getting a law degree and I need to do this and I do that. You have to evaluate the market, right? You have to, there, there's a part that is is business, right? right? And that's the issue that I think is the issue, at least what I can see for the minority Black community, for, for people who are not at the table, we're not necessarily thinking in terms of business and the market, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what gets us into trouble. Right. No, and even if we do want those law degrees, if we come out and we know we have that much debt, we have to figure out, OK, maybe I need to partner with like two other three other people. Right. And start our own firm. And you've seen the old guard. Let's say when it was Christian, the Jewish men had to do that because they were not accepted into the New York white shoe firms. They right. started their own firms. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times these firms became even more successful. Right. Than the so-called Christian firms. And that's a, a lesson right out of New York City, right? Because. No, you create your own table. That is really, that is what table. it is. You create yes. your own table. You have to do it if you're not a part of it. And then part of the legacy, even though my, my father's aunt was one of the first black, was the first black woman to open a store in Baltimore in a particular mall. She was, she had a boutique and those lessons didn't necessarily translate from generation to generation, right? So my uncles and my aunts, my great aunt, they were successful in ways that a lot of people in our peer group are not. 
But a you little bit I mean? of that, don't you think a little bit of that had to do with segregation versus desegregation? So sure. my yeah. so the idea is, is that in the 50s and the early 60s, there was a black middle class that was completely segregated from right. white middle class. And then the idea is that we wanted all this desegregation, but then white culture just completely ate up black culture and like yeah. ran out like basically all the black middle class businesses. I mean, in a sense, like Malcolm X was very, I think kind of right in a sense of create your own table. And the idea is, is that in the desegregation, we ran out all the mom and pop stores and like Gen X has needed to basically start from scratch again. Scratch again, you're right. You know, like in that sense of, because now you're sort of competing with white wealth. You have to compete with, you know, if there's one main street now, mm -hmm. rents are going to be super high. And so a corporate white store is going to go in and the mom and pop store, I mean, this really goes for everybody. It doesn't even matter right. with race, but it's just harder to get a seat at the table now. So how do we go back to being able to create everybody being able to create their own table. Remember when we were talking about wine and we were talking about generational wealth and how with climate change, it is going to change the to see more people of different cultures in the wine industry. This is it as well. Like it's about generational wealth. And like, there's a few celebrities recently that have been talking about Blacks, African-American celebrities that have been talking about taking on all these different projects because they want to create generational wealth. Right. And I think this is something that this is something that we need to talk about in the black community, that we're not just making money for ourselves, that we're making money for our generate for, for uh, the future generations. And we're trying to build on something. And I think I think that I would that there's something that's being skipped in that in this process with our generation. Yes. Yeah. We just don't yes. talk about it. Like we're not talking about it enough, or I a lot of it is that the generation right under us, and maybe even part of us were the I generation with the iPhone and the me and the this and the that and the Instagram and everything. So we're not thinking beyond ourselves, but I think part of the message is that we have to start thinking generationally. So it may not happen for us right now, but we're build, laying the foundation for our future generations to be able to have this generational wealth. And then I, I, I would agree with that. People in wine. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think that, the, and I brought this up before, the major way that business is done, though, is not, it is not a part of our culture. It's not a part of a lot of American people's culture. So in other words, when you meet someone who is really about a business or understands business, there's a certain way that they have a conversation with you. And that means that even if they're, you know, different race, right? And I'm, the current role that I am in now, I'm working for a company, and this is the language that I am using when I have a conversation with someone who is, a, let's say, who's going to change, pick up a car and have it fixed and then drop it back, right? So the way that I'm saying, okay, we need to have this and this done, right? And, and we need the car to be dropped off at this point, and we need it to be picked up at this point, and how much do you charge for it? Like the moment you start to get into sort of these details, this is when you, and the person is right there with you, then you're like, okay, this is great. And I think, I'll give you an example. You know, my peers from college, 
when I have these kinds of conversations and I say, you know, I have my own internet show and I say, hey, I want to interview you and this is why I think it's important, et cetera. The same kind of conversation either goes well, really well, or doesn't go well or falls flat. So in other words, they don't even understand why I'm even having the conversation with them. Because if they really understood, they truly, truly understood it, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be, a, they wouldn't have hesitated. Mm-hmm. They're not looking, in other words, they're looking at it too small. Well, Dave thinks he's this and that. It's not even about that. It's about what are you doing in business and being able to present that to people so that they can actually say, hey, I want that. And I think I was telling you about the Mexican guys that were like sort of doing a twist on the falafel, whatever. And I was like, I so love this because that's what we need to be doing all the time. And in any little aspect of our lives, it doesn't have to be where you have a whole bunch of capital and you're starting a business. It could be something small about how you approach getting something that from the drugstore. Right. And, and, and like, but, something or you yeah. ask the manager, well, why do, are, do you carry this and this? I really think you should carry, you know, this product. Right. What about how does shame like work in with that, though? Because when I was brought up, really, that money was shameful that there was and whether it's scarcity mindset or whether it was just that, you know, there was, and you, we grew up in the same town. Like, so there was like old money and then Uh there was new money and new money was ugly and old money was what we wanted to be like. Like we all wanted to be like the waspy people and not like the new money. And there was a shame to talk about it. And how does that fit in for you with business and, and moving this dialogue along? Well, it doesn't have a, it doesn't have it. Yes. <laughs> I'm not in that space. I'm not oh, in that space at all. I'm jealous. It's different, the, it's, it's different in the black community. It is. Like I have, a, I have a story about that. This is one of the yeah. reasons why I'm Alex. It was like, I, I still have this anxiety about discussing rate a class with you. So mm. went to fashion week. I don't know. This would be a long time ago when I actually went to fashion week and you know, there's a look that you have to have when you're in fashion week, even if you're, even if you're invited, you, there's a look. So I would carry my flats. I would walk my flats and carry them in my bag and put on my heels when I got to Lincoln center. And then I'd walk through Lincoln center, get into the show, sit down in my painful heels. And then as soon as the show was over, walk out and put on my flats. I went to go meet up with a cousin and I had my flats um, at, at the, I don't remember what it was, but I did, hadn't changed shoes yet. We get to this restaurant that I said I wanted to meet her. We get to the restaurant and I pull my flats out of the bag and I was like, oh, I can't wait to take these shoes off. My flats were Manolo Blahniks, right? My shoes were, I think they were Nicholas Kirkwood, like designer. I'm not going to even apologize for that. You know what I mean? It's my cousin was like you have Manolo flats that's the look and the talk and like this is we're just having lunch yeah you know what I mean like there was no pretense or anything at least in my part right Mm -hmm. I don't know why I felt funny about it I don't even know why I felt a certain type of way about it but I felt a certain type of way about it right and then 
you know, um, I'm only in New York for for the for the Fashion Week, or and well, a little bit more because I had to do some shopping with the Fashion Week after, so like two weeks. During these two weeks, I'm kind of busy, and but to them, they it, they think of it as not being work. They think I'm just there for fun. They don't realize that I'm taking copious notes. I'm meeting with the designers afterwards. I'm then going to the buyers. I'm then trying to figure out like what my budget for the store was going to be. You know, like there's all these different things that I'm having to do that's work around fashion week. But because they see fashion week as just this kind of like stupid event where people get dressed up and go for glamour. Right. So you couple that with the fact that I'm I'm wearing designer clothes, that I've flown in from Australia, that I'm staying in a hotel, like the whole thing, my family makes me feel ashamed for the privilege that I have. So then I so feel wait a like the privilege that you've earned. True. Especially when it comes to fashion week, I have fucking earned that right. I earned the right now to not even need to go to have right. them to have the designers send me the book before it even goes to the show. Right. And that is a, that is a hard earned right. Exactly. Okay. But the problem is here though, is that you it's have a job bad. though, that's outside a nine to five format. People aren't going to understand what that job is, which is kind of what makes California such a lovely place to be because you know, like so many people don't have normal jobs because I even get that as a teacher. People call me in the middle of the day. They're like, well, what, you're not teaching. I'm like, I'm still working. Just because I'm not in, in front of the classroom does not mean that there isn't work for me to do. Where even when my mother was alive, she would call me. She's like, well, you can come visit me. I'm like, I'm in the middle of a semester. She's like, but you're not working. I'm like, this is a job. <laughs> I, just because I don't go in every day and toil somewhere part of that it and it is class right i mean that is you're right to say that's a class issue in a lot of ways and it is also and there's a lot of shaming yeah but this isn't even old money new money right right no you're right i don't have the i don't have the money that they think i have or I don't understand where they think rich is like, cause rich is relative and trying to explain this to my family is been yeah. so difficult. And then it makes me again, I'm put off side. Like they I'm pushed in a place where, well, of course you can say that. Cause you got a house and you got this and you got, and I'm like, I, I, I don't even know. Like, I just don't even want to have the conversation anymore. So like I avoid certain family members and I avoid certain conversations and like, I, I avoid conversations having to do with anything that I'm wearing, anything that I'm working on, any handbag I have, or I might even play down my entire appearance to go home. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's an issue. I, I, I think you're talking about, you brought it up with, by bringing up shame, right? Yes. And, and shame of money. I don't consider this is, and people being black or being African-American in the United States, the issues of money are completely different in my opinion than in the mainstream culture. And this includes Asians and everyone, but black people because of the history of, how we came up as a people in the country, right? So 
For us to say, okay, even when you throw out and you say I'm middle class, like I, I think my parents tried to present us as middle class, but we really were working class people. Right. You know, mm. I, my, when I realized, I said, wait a minute, we were working middle class if there's an, any a thing. So that's why I think I'm able to understand like maybe what a mechanic might be going through or, you know, right. like when I pick up the phone and call and I already know what, how I'm going to talk and what I need to get. Right. right. Because, you know, what I saw, you know, at home and what I saw at, at, at school, even high school and then also University of Pennsylvania, two completely different worlds. I had no problems with talking about money or anything because I didn't see, consider myself old money and wanting to be like old money. And I wasn't a part of the new money. Right. Either. Yes. Like literally you know, you, you said about Generation X having to start over from scratch. I have relatives that did well considering where they were at the moment. And I still felt like I had to start over from scratch. Yeah. Wow. You know, like I was starting yeah. from the beginning. So to be shy about money and not wanting to talk about money, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. We got well, to get to maybe that's, I mean, could we... I think what we're saying, and I, I think it's true, is that having shame around money is privilege. Like there's a white privilege to ha- being able to have shame about money. Because I got, if you- I got shame about around money. All right. So, but I mean, I think, I think, but it's in a different way. Like Alex is saying, okay, like old money, and I'm supposed to talk about it. You presented a total, not totally different, but you've presented your perspective in terms of how your family is viewing every single thing that's associated with the job and and putting more on it than really it should be, right? Because the whole idea, and this is what they say all the time, is that your parents, you want your children to do better than how you did, right? You've heard this over and over and over again, but when it actually happens that you start to do better than them, then there's some there's sometimes hell to pay, right? And it's in a different way and their shame comes in in a different form. So in other words, Alex, you wouldn't be made to feel badly because you're making certain money as a law professor or you've No, not at all. Whereas I am made to feel badly because I married a man that gave me a house. Right. (laughs) And I'm laughing because I'm like, God bless you. God bless you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And I want to, and I look, I want to make it clear because we talked about this before. Like the way that I came to Switzerland, I said, you, you told people, not everybody knows that story. You guys are very, you know, more people will know it now, but I came here because somebody was from here. Right. right? I would not have had that opportunity. Right. So there was some conflict, inner conflict that I had because I was coming, so I've, in other words, I was in uh, Lenya's camp, because I was getting stuff that I would not have gotten had I not been in that relationship. And that is the honest truth. But, but I think that's a, be- but I mean, that is like, for me, I listened to that for, for both of you. Yes. And I actually admire, here's what's important to understand is that I admire that because that just means that your inner trust muscle is really strong in order to love another person because I have kind of grown up, you know, my mother really brought me up second wave feminist, like you better be independent no matter what. 
And I've kind of grown up almost uber paranoid that I need to cover my own nut, like no matter what. So, I mean, like even when Eric could have supported me, I Mm. was miserable because I couldn't accept it. You know, I couldn't accept it without shame because it, and it just made me feel like a failure for somehow. Like, so it's an interesting well, it depends, don't you think? Housewife. As a you are not. That is well. Glorified housewife. But but <laughs> I think it's so not true. But go ahead. But I think but there are. This is another thing. Like we were brought up that women had to. I think had to pursue a profession. I, I think in our generation it was more about there was an expectation that women went out and worked. It wasn't this whole thing about women staying at home. I mean, it was at least from, oh, from my perspective. Yeah, no. If all of my female cohorts, peers, whatever you want to call them, are people that we know, we don't know that many people that stay at home from work. No. And so my younger sister became a, a, a housewife or a mother, and she raised four children. That was her primary thing and still is her primary thing. And that's a job. That is a job. But she made that a choice based on how she grew up and how we grew up. Right. So that's a whole other, there's a whole other thing that 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 came into play because she was six years younger. And so she saw things a little bit like the younger you know generation where she's like, hey look, it's not gonna be what you know David and my older sister had to do don't you all think i mean we were i was a latchkey kid where yeah yes it was on yeah i mean i also think a part of it is is that we also grew up in an era where we were home alone after school like that was just what we did so of course you were gonna work because you were witnessing everybody working and that was sort of the expectation but i find my mom wanted me to marry well and not have to my mom. My, it's really, so funny. My mother had saying that's why my parents pushed me to the like, you know, that like that kind of like black con- black, what is it? There's a there was like it's cotillion, but I can't remember the name of the group that it was in. Jack and Jill and, and yeah, and all that crap. They wanted me to marry well and not have to work that hard. Like they didn't push me at all. Go down at the bottom of the barrel where like, you know, bottom of the list when it came to pushing for any kind of academic excellence or even giving money to actually pursue anything that I want. My brothers got everything and I'm not faulting them because I'm really happy because they're black men in America and they need it. They need all the armor they can get. But it was just like, ah, she, she's fine. She's just going to marry a really nice rich guy. Wow. I, my mother had a saying called money marries money. So I was like, well, like, and you know, the fact is, is that I, and this is what's interesting about class. It's all perspective because in high school, I mean, I, I don't know if I thought about class. I definitely felt I've written a lot about my dad moving from poverty to working (laughs) class and to then feeling going from meatloaf to steak. I mean, like I kind of remember (laughs) <laughs> the difference in the meals, like it was, it, was, it changed, you know, sure. and my dad 
I just felt the change. Like I felt mm. my dad getting a Mercedes, you know, versus mm. an old Buick. Like I felt the growth. And then I went to FNM, which was this ritzy, small liberal arts college and boy comparatively felt poor. Like that's yeah. what's ridiculous. I mean, I was so out of sorts at college because I just couldn't understand how everybody, it just was like a different way of living that I felt very uncomfortable with. And I, and I just, I kind of knew it wasn't a life I wanted. And that was beginning my whole journey to getting to California. But my parents were always like, you're going to work. You're going to, you know, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, they never said that, but it was doctor, lawyer, engineer. I think were basically, they're like, you can do whatever you want, doctor, lawyer, engineer. That was sort of the messaging. I, I will tell you a story because I think that my parents are more so in Lenya's parents' camp, which is that there was this dichotomy where they wanted us to do well, but there were certain things or certain cues that you would get that were like, what? You know? And luckily I was so into my doing whatever it was that I was doing. And I think I was super confident about this particular point, which is that you should have the right to follow what it is that you want in terms of, I don't want to use the word dream because it seems like dreams are unattainable, but if you have a vision, I like to use the word vision. So I had a vision for my life. I remember my mother saying once, you know, after you graduate from high school, she goes, after you graduate from college, I don't care what you do. Right. And I was like, what? Like, like what? <laughs> What's she talking about? Like, and there were times where she would say stuff like that, and I'd be like, "What's she talking about?" Right? You know, and, and just not really even paying attention. Right. But there are other things, other maybe things that weren't said that I picked up on that prevented me from actually moving things forward. Wow! Like what? Um. Well, let's say, for example, their reaction to, I mean, I was on the gymnastics team. I was in, you know, dance, doing dance. Oh, shit. Hold on one second. Um, you guys talk. <laughs> Sorry. I'm also like, I have a photo shoot virtually in Perth tomorrow. and just making sure that the director and I mean, that everything is That's all awesome. set up. Can you so, imagine so, do it virtually? Bye. I love that you're doing it virtually. This is the new, this is, we're, you're global now, Lenya. You're a global brand. I know. Seriously. And I just reached out to a uh, Formula One presenter. You did? And I said, listen, I want to style you. I'm Good hoping. you. I answered. Uh, That's yeah. the way you do it. That's, the That's way. absolutely the way. Is it, a cold, is it a cold, is it a cold approach or like, yeah. you know, you saw them? <laughs> Something that I don't even think he would, he probably even thought about. I wanted to talk to him because he has this like incredible shoe collection. He wears like yellow boots and in Germany, it's freezing right now. He had red moon boots on. Oh my God. I was like, you know what? We should work together and we should design some shoes and design outfits around this so that when you do your paddock walk, it can be even more memorable. You know, and I just kind of like laid out a little cold, um, not even email. I just DM, like DM to my Yes, yes, yes. Because I need, I noticed that people will check their DMs on Instagram much quicker than they check their emails. Yeah. Sure. Now they do. Yeah. Right? Like, I yeah, just, like, I mean, 
no, no, and like, you know, expectation that anything will happen. But if I got him over there in Europe, and then I have Charmaine in Perth, and then I have my two American actors, that's it. I'm good. I'm good. And, and I think you, what you're saying or what you're doing, and I mean, that's the way it's done in the creative business. Like you have to come up with vision every single day. You mm-hmm. have to do it. That's the only way it's going to translate into money. And I think that's where I don't have the shame in money because Absolutely. like, I understand that so well. And then when I was telling you about my, you know, my mother is or a former art teacher, so she should have understood it. And she worked in uh, when New York, she worked for Schumacher Waverly Fabrics. So she designed fabrics. She came up with the color for the fabrics and then actually laid it out and, and then took that to print. And this is before the computers. So she hand painted all of that stuff. Yeah. Wow. So, so she was doing her thing, right? But I mean, I guess she didn't have a concept that I needed to do my thing, right? Yeah. And that, you know, whether she supported it or not really was not my concern because if it had been my concern, just the fact she said, well, you can do whatever you want. I'm like, well, I'm going to do whatever I want. Like there's a part of me that was thinking right. that all along you know, cut to moving to Switzerland, that wasn't an easy thing to do, but I knew I had to do it. Right. I knew that I had to do it because it had to be done, if that made sense. If it makes any sense, based on what everything that we've talked about and based on what was, you know, going on at the moment, I was like, well, I guess I'm going to Switzerland then. Right. That was the mindset and I was going to make it work. So, you know, that was for 13, 14 years that I was like maybe 13 years that I was with this person and I'm still in contact with him. Right. right. Um, he's in New York. Oh, so he funny. moved back to New York. <laughs> I'm in Switzerland. Right. But I think had I not had that relationship, the whole lot of things that you and I are talking about now, we wouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> it's just, we wouldn't be talking about it. But that's just, that's kismet. That's fate. Those are those, those moments in life you know, that take you to your next destination. Well, and I think that's true. And it doesn't always have to be, we're talking about money, but if we talk about money as energy, and then we just talk about energy and partnership, the fact is, is that Eric came into my life. It it was kismet, right? Because he was, I mean, he was a couch surfer. I mean, he was basically living on his friend's, he was living in his friend's boat when I met him. But I was quitting the law. When the our first date was the day before I walked into the law firm and said, I'm quitting. And mm-hmm. I had twenty five hundred dollars in the bank. That was it. Owed a shitload of money in student loans. And Eric introduced me to this completely other version of San Francisco. I was looking to sort of get rid of New Jersey. Like that's mm-hmm. like the rigidity of New Jersey. And the idea that Eric he's going to kill me, but he didn't graduate. He didn't finish college. We were talking and it was unheard of me. Like, how do you not finish college? Like, uh, how do you just not do that? And, and then the idea is we had read all the same books and he was actually in the end, more educated than I was because I went through and I did everything I was supposed to do. But Eric was listening to music, finding his own way and finding his own interests rather than me looking at teachers foisting their interests on me. 
And so I met this man who like found his own way. And then just, I was always interested in the fringes of, of society and Eric knew all the fringes. And, I, and it, was, it was the most tremendous gift I've ever been given in, in that sense of like an introduction into a wider world uh, and, and exposed me. And in a sense, like my journey, even though now I'm a law professor, I spent 10 years just as a freelance writer, just trying to make things work. And then I fell into being a law professor. I think you hit on some things. And this is why it really pays to do and know who you are, at least know who you are, know what you want to get out of life and not necessarily worry about what school yeah. is doing. Now, I remember, look, when I got flunked out of law school, you know, I had already gotten fired from a couple of jobs and stuff. So I was already sort of uh, weathered enough to, to, to handle how I was going to get back into law school, right? Sure. So I had to go before a board, right? So I, I even took that as a, an opportunity to say, hey, when you go there in front of that board, just tell them that you didn't know. Like, just say you didn't know. Right. Like just say that you didn't know, but you got when you say it, you got to say it really pat. Like I literally went in now I, before when I first failed at something, whatever it was, I, I was like, oh, my God, I failed. And I was all heavy and stuff. This time people are like, oh, you're not going to go back to law school. I'm like, I am. They're, you're not going to go back. I'm like, I am. I, I will go back. And so when I went before that board and it was a black professor on that board who did not necessarily like me, the person that. I went around to get into the law school. She wasn't cool with me, the, one of the admissions uh, people. So they're like, well, why did you flunk out? I was like, I just didn't know the law. I didn't know the law. I didn't know the law. Right? And I did, that's the only thing that I said. And it was almost like, and the only way that I could have said that was because I was in law school and I was playing some, somehow playing the game or at least watching other people play the game. So I, I was like, I'm not playing that game. And that's why I flunked out. So when I went before the board, I knew that all I had to do was take elective classes and I would, I was going to graduate because I didn't have to know everything from an elective class, right? I right. could just take seminars and all that stuff. The first year class, that was, those were the killers. So I was like, I just didn't know the law. And I relished, I enjoyed the fact that I could say that in front of that admissions person and that guy who didn't like me from critical race theory. I was like, I just didn't know the law. Well, it's I, powerful, I but you know the other thing is a... about failing, like having that experience early on mm -hmm. has made you fearless, right? I mean, how much more fearless uh, are well, you? Well, look, that was like a... One of many steps. Like it didn't go from zero to a hundred, right? It didn't go to zero on that though, because that that critical race theory professor I thought was full of crap, right? So I wrote a fantastic paper, which one day I'll write the book, and it was called the deconstruction of the super negro, right? So some of the things that we're talking about now are kind of bleeding out into that, yeah. but it was my whole thing was that part of the reason why the black middle class or the black people in general in America, we're not doing well is that we're not like focusing on our, what our God-given gift was, right? But right. I put a legal framework around it, which is once you do that, once you focus on what you're good at, now you're still going to go through hell, but at least you're going to be in a position where you are leaning into what God has given you um, as a gift.
and that's going to supersede every single thing that that comes your way. You're going to be able to bat bat things out of your way with such ease. Whereas if you're going and doing something that people expect you to do, right, because you went to a certain school, then yeah. you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble. And I've seen a lot of it, you know, years later from people that had graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, you know, and exactly miserable because they followed exactly what their parents told them that they should be doing. Yeah, I agree. You know, well, and, I mean, and, like, and that's the thing, right? You got to live, you have to live your you true. You have to do it. You have, you to. have to do it. So if your parents are like not cool with the fact that you've chosen a certain profession or if you've chosen a certain person for your, your partner, you know, something has to give, right? So no, it, it's it, true. It, and they're not going to be around. <laughs> You're going to be around longer, you know, knock on wood than they are. I mean, like, you have to live your life. Right. Right. They, you have to live their life. So a lot at, at a certain point, some of the stuff they're saying has no, it should have no weight. If you no, really, I totally agree. That's really, really focusing on what you, you're supposed to be doing with yourself. Well, that's why, like, I sometimes like, I mean, when was the last time you lived at home underneath? When was the last time you lived with your parents? When did I don't you? Know. I don't know. I can't even. <laughs> All right. I mean, that's the thing. Like I left at 17, went to college and that was it. And so part of it is like you find your own vision and then you live your own. You have to live your own truth. And it was hard. I mean, right. Like, so I had it. My parents did not understand my life, my necessarily my choices, and they didn't understand my choice in a partner, actually. I, but it was only because they loved me and they wanted stability for me. And once I sort of understood that it was their fear, it wasn't disapproval, it was just their fear that I wasn't going to live a stable life or live a certain way. I was able to sort of accept their fears and, and whatever judgments. And then eventually they sort of became confident I mean, I remember the moment my dad was like, I know you'll be able to figure it out no matter what, like, because that's what you do. And I was like, yeah. And that was, I was like, yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. I have a different journey, you know? Well, well, well the, the thing in terms of you brought up the, the whole idea of, okay, as a black person in, the, in Switzerland, and I think things are changing so quickly now with society and what's happening now that you, that one doesn't even have time to even focus on the things that we were brought up to focus on in the past things are happening so quickly mm-hmm. that if you hold on to any one thing that you feel is supposed to happen in your life yeah you're going to have a nervous breakdown every other every other day because now it's it's not just all of us are going through it because of this current health situation worldwide. Sure. And things, people who thought they had certain things in lock, as we say. You know, <laughs> it's true. They thought they had certain things in lock because society has changed so rapidly. Some of them don't have jobs now. Some yeah. of them are in situations where they are, their financial, even their, like where they thought they were on the, on the, on the, in the pecking order, social pecking order, it doesn't have the same relevance now because that's not what people are thinking about first and foremost. No, it's true. I mean, this is a, this is a huge restructuring. My doctor, when I went to go see her 
the beginning of COVID, we were having this whole discussion about how just with this lockdown has has kind of shown the light on a bunch of things. Like obviously it's exposed racism, it's exposed so many flaws in our system, but she says it also exposed how people's success were built on falsehoods because it only took closing down for one month for so many businesses that yeah. were successful, quote unquote, to just go because mm-hmm. it wasn't built on anything substantial. It's true. And so she she's fortunate. And she said she thought that her business, that she was one of those people that her business was built on, like, you know, because she had a six month waiting list and, you know, and, and she thought that this was like, oh, this is amazing. I'm so successful. But it only took the the pandemic and having to close down and restructure the way she had to do business as a doctor for her to see that she wasn't as successful as she thought. I still personally, as her patient, feel like to, moving to her was the greatest decision that I have ever made as a woman because she is the first doctor that has heard me. You know what I mean? And this is a, a whole thing about being a black woman in America and going to a doctor. It's a, sure. it's a frightening experience. But I feel like she's successful because I still, I will still wait six months to go to her. I but get for that. her, like, you know, she just felt like, wow, it was just all so superficial and she's restructured and she's still doing well. And she's kind of like, after a few months of seeing her now, she realizes that she's done okay. But it was funny that first conversation when she was like, this is all built on falsehoods falsehoods no i mean this is a chance the beginning of the pandemic i was like this is a chance for us to all press pause mm-hmm. and actually straighten some shit out like yep. and see where we are see, see where, where we, we are. are and i and i actually think that black lives matter the most recent iteration of the movement that started this summer with the murder of george floyd actually think that that's absolutely perfect timing people are like the timing is bad i'm like no the timing, timing was perfect, perfect because like this is the reckoning like this is the chance for a reckoning and a reordering potentially of the way society can be it's because why, everybody was home and people could you, pay attention david why do you think why do you think people are thought it was bad timing though i think people thought it was bad timing well, white people always think it's bad timing because- Oh, so you're saying the white, was white folks didn't say it was bad timing? Because <laughs> black people would not say it was bad timing. Black folk was like, it's about time. <laughs> yeah, but no, I mean, I think that, I, I think people, I do think there was a little bit like, oh, well, you know, we can't really be out in the streets because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. but that didn't matter. But I really do think white people are like, no, it's too much. Like, you know- I'm tired from the pandemic. Now I'm going to be tired because we're talking about race too. Like, I, I think that's exactly what people are thinking about. And I agree. Like, I was like, no, this is the perfect timing. This is why this is happening. I mean, this is what it's, it's time. Well, I find it so funny how white people just get so tired. Black people just don't have the time to be tired. <laughs> I don't have the time to be tired. Black people do not have the time to be tired for anything. Mean, I mean, meanwhile, I have to follow this Instagram called the Nap Ministry just so that I can take a moment to feel, you know, to have that nap and feel okay about it. White people are like, I'm tired. I don't want to wear a mask anymore. I'm so tired. Right, so right. Tired. Well, there's, a, there's, there's, there's. Look, you know, and we've talked about a whole bunch of things, but still, 
there is a huge gap between white America and black America. And I, I you know, there are other ethnic groups in America now, but the, 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 when I grew up in, in Maryland, those were the two. <laughs> you yeah. were either white or you were black. And, and, and it's, it's such a part of the, the way that the country is built. Yeah. Right. And how, how, how things have developed. I mean, I'm not going to say there's no going. I mean, it's like there's no going back. And and for now, for what, in other words, what white people generally don't think about or they don't understand, and we, we've hit on a lot of different things, is that by virtue of being white, you are a member of a certain club that Black people have not been a part of for Ever. Hundreds, hundreds of years. Yeah. And that has multiplied exponentially since the founding of the country and morphed into many, many different ways and forms. And yet it still is this. If you are white in the United States, you have certain access automatically, even if you don't even know it. And I think that that's part of what's sort of informing, I think, Gen X's decision-making or lack thereof decision-making, right? A lack of decision-making with regard to what is happening now in our country. You know, because based on what we experience and what we know, we should be doing, you know, we should be hitting the ground running and doing all kinds of things that the younger generation is doing, but we have not had that same kind of, that same kind of commitment to that. We've committed in different ways, but in other words, we're still trying to figure things out. We're still trying to figure things out. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of it is that we were the first wave of Black society that was integrated into mainstream in a much bigger and broader way than ever before. Mm-hmm. And with that comes all kinds of issues that we have not been able to deal with in the way that maybe we would have liked, right? Because we were first timers and it's first it's time at bat. And yeah. so we're literally playing it out with the hopes that it will, it will all work out. But I think, you know, the knowledge of these two distinct worlds where, you know, literally... I, Yes, there are people or white people that have poverty and come from poverty and, and, and go through hardship. But because, I'll even put it this way, we've done some research on my family and we now know a little bit more, a lot more about, you know, what happened in my grandmother's life and her mother's life. There were people that came from Europe and were set up with property, with opportunity and had slaves or had people, you know, indentured people working for right. them just by virtue of that that one transaction, that one movement. Like there are people that have no wealth that moved to the United States and had been able to integrate into society in a very short period of time. Absolutely. Right? And this has happened for, you know, generations upon generations, but yet Black Americans who have been in the country for generations and generations are still not on par with some of the recent newcomers, right? And this is what, you know, this is what, you know, part of what we're dealing with or grappling with and what is coming out now through this movement 
part of it. There's that. I mean, there's that part of it. But the other part of it is when like Lenny was saying, oh, like, I don't understand how white people are so tired. Well, I think that the important thing that's happening for white people now is that we're hopefully starting to understand like what the privilege is, is the fact that white people don't have to think about race when they choose not to. It's like, it's like, oh, we're going to have a discussion about race, but white people just walk through the world and we are. And the idea is the, that's great privilege. The fact that I don't need to think about it. And what's exhausting people is that I have to, I have to actually have this (laughs) occupy a part of my brain 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I have to actually acknowledge race all the time. Oh my God, that's so exhausting. I don't want to think about it. Well, welcome to being welcome to the rest of the world. And also, I think a lot of white people don't like the fact that they're even just being told, right? So, because I had a conversation, remember remember at the beginning of this, when that friend, like we'll just call, call it a friend, quote unquote, had that Instagram live with another white friend, quote unquote, uh, yeah, I remember. Um, to talk about race, but these two white women were, were leading the conversation. I'm like, what? Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's just like, I, I, I'm, I'm constantly floored about, you know, things like that. But then when I pointed out to them, oh my God, you know, the little white fragility just came through with these comments. I'm like, you need to understand that if I'm telling you that I'm offended by your behavior, then your behavior is offensive. Right. It's true. You know, just because you're white and you want to think that you're woke doesn't mean you are. And the fact that you do the two white women having a conversation about race and directing the conversation tells me you're not woke. Yeah, no, it's right? true. I was just like, and then to be mad at me for it, for it, for telling them this was the other thing that pissed, just pissed me off. I was already pissed off. And then when I said to them, listen, and I felt comfortable enough to say this, but now I don't ever want to talk to you again. I think, and, and I've been told that this is unfair that I am, um, because I've just kind of like, it's not that I've canceled them because I know that, <laughs> I know that, that, that Alex has a thing about canceling. Very it's not that I've canceled them because I haven't canceled them, but I just don't, you know what? You don't, don't want to be bothered. Yeah, I well, I think there's nothing wrong with like cutting out poison in your life, or life is too short. You got to live your vision, and you have to live your truth, and and get rid of what you don't need. That isn't my problem. Cancel culture is when you're going out and publicly shaming people. Well, listen, I, you know I want to do that, right? You know I want to say their names, but I'm not going. <laughs> but then you know what? You say that, but then we'll like go back and edit it, and you'll take it out. So you just want to say their names now, and then in five minutes you'll be like, "No, that's me." Loves me so well. <laughs> so Alex just she just read me. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, I, I feel that way too. I mean, I get it, but I st- but I really would love to one day have the 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 balls to get on here and just call people out that I know. But in this particular instance, all too close to my to my yeah, my personal sphere, and I just it would make a whole b- bunch of other people's lives on um not 
comfortable. Not comfortable. I mean, they'll listen because they listen to this podcast. They'll listen to this and they know who they are because they, <laughs> okay. <laughs> they, they know who they are because they know what they did. And they know my reaction to it is the reaction that I'm telling you right now. I was furious. I was like, what? Yeah. But you know, and, and they'll know, and maybe, you know, at some point, maybe if they keep hearing it like this, it'll get into their brains. But I, I, I do, I, I, I find it really hard at this moment because it's so easy with you, Alex, right? Like, and I just expect all of my interactions with other um, white people to be as easy. And I'm always shocked when it's not. I mean, I'm not as shocked anymore, but like, you know, in this women bridging the gap journey that we're on, yeah, I keep hoping, I keep hoping that there is, that the, the gap is getting um, closer. And then it just, I guess, makes me very sad to find out constantly that the gap isn't getting closer. It's not getting wider right now, which is, in, which is great because at one point I thought it's getting wider, but it's just not moving as quickly as I'd like. I get that. I mean, but I'm very aware like I, so you guys are making fun of people who feel tired. I was like, no, I feel tired. Like, <laughs> I just, I, I mean, the two things, like one, like, yeah. So what if I'm tired? Like grow up, Alex. Like, so you're uncomfortable with this. Like that's, this is, this is growth. Like being uncomfortable is growth. And I did have this moment you know, I'm writing this book of personal essays and Black Lives Matter happened. And I, and it was this moment, my book may never happen. You know, like the book might not happen for me because the truth is it's that publishers are not going to be looking for middle-aged white voices. But then I was like, I'm going to do my truth. I'm going to write my book and I'm going to do this podcast. And if it really means in this world that I need to step aside you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to step aside. Like it's more important. Like the, because my vision is broader than my narrow, like my narrow one thing I like want artistically for myself. I have a broader, I have a broader vision for my own life and for society. There is again, such a thing called the market, right? Which yep. is, I keep, I keep bringing this up. Meaning, I know you're like businessman. It's true. Uh, like, yeah, I'm a creative person, but I, I'm like, I'm always looking at the market. So when I think of when I'm on the internet, I'm listening to everybody. I mean, I'm listening to conservative. I'm listening to liberal. I'm listening to black women, gay men. I mean, I'm listening to anybody that looks interesting to me right. because I'm trying to get a sense of what people are gravitating to, to right? And right. even though I'm here in Switzerland. I still have an ear for what's happening in the U.S. market, right? So you, 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 part of how you, this is just how I see it, part of how you're getting your message out there is you want to be able to somehow hit the people that are going to be open to hearing you, right? And that's, and my, I mean, part of it is that you say, okay, I want to talk about my story and my truth, but then part of it is that well, where is the market going? Is there anything that I can discuss that's relevant now, right? That's going to enhance my story or my perspective if I bring it in, right? Or it's like being a journalist, 
in some respect, yeah. but not necessarily letting what's happening outside inform your, you know, or or take over your story. But in some way, it's going to, whether it be as you say, the timing, or yeah. how or when you start to write the story, what you focus on, you know, maybe what will be be up front versus be in the back of the book. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's what makes you like, you know, you have to be adaptable. And I and I do think it's really the loss of rigidity for me. It's always been like learning how to be. The best lesson I've learned in my life is is being flexible which is not you know it's like being able to like be malleable and like and 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 be forward thinking and honestly like look for a little bit of joy and in in whatever it is I mean because it's connection because if you don't connect then what is there I mean part of like Lenny and I started this podcast it was as much the pandemic in us to having zoom conversations with each other and then our reaction to the murder of George Floyd that started this podcast. No, it was Amy. It was Amy Cooper. Oh, it was Amy Cooper. Right, it, right. It was the Karen incident that just aggravated us beyond beyond the anything. We, I mean, I think we talked about that just personally. Yeah, at least three weeks. I but mean, it was so much about the connection between for each other. Though we were talking on Zoom all the time, and we're like, let's let's. Let's get mics and just do this. I mean, yeah. that was. It was an amazing moment to, to capture on film, would you say? When I oh, say yeah. amazing, it, it really was an amazing moment, right? Oh, because absolutely. It, it was just amazing because you're thinking like, no, she didn't. Right? Like you're thinking, you're, you, you're thinking, mm. how could she have ever put herself out there like that? How could she have ever thought that that was I'm not going to say that that was okay because that's too it's too simplistic and even of how I'm putting it out because there's so many things that happened in that video (laughs) all at once do you understand what I mean like which he may not have even had been aware of he was aware of it well he He was aware of it because he was he, completely aware of it. Well, he was, but now he's being, he's kind of like backtracking on he's how- He's backpedaled, yeah. He's, he's backpedaled a lot, the, the guy, you know. I mean, he wrote a comic book about it and and the comic book is doing really well. So I'm happy about that. But like, yeah, he won't go to court. Right, because I mean, it's-, it's But I get why. It's like, yeah, you, you understand why, right? I get why, yeah. I, I completely understand, but I just- Why? Well tell, well, tell me why. You know, he's a, he's a black man with a Harvard law degree in business. This is bringing some hard truths and, and, and spotlight on him. That's not necessarily good for him moving forward in business. I get it. You know, like, I get it. This is still 2020 and we still have a, um, a racist in the white house calling on his, his, you know, supporters to do horrible things. Right. So, you know, you still have that in the back of your mind, but I get well, it. That, what, I, what I thought was really, with that incident, you sort of couldn't believe it was unfolding, but then it was like, of course this is unfolding. This is the, this is what I, what I, not that I love the incident, but I, it so cast a spotlight on what every black American goes through. It and was huge. It's it huge. was big. 
yeah, yeah. it was huge it, it, because you, and you did put, you said it correctly which was it was like a slow-mo moment it was yeah. like it was like is this happening it did mm-hmm. did like did he capture what I thought he captured yeah. and then you start to see it turn in a certain direction and well, then it becomes also, super clear the important thing is in Lenya and I talked about this when it happened the other thing is let's she looks so normal. Like that's the other thing is that this is where we can start talking about, you know, white progressive women or just the average white person is that the racist isn't walking around necessarily with a MAGA hat or a hood. Like this is just the yoga girl, you know what I mean? With her, with her, with her, with her rescue dog. Like it's, and that's, and that's the world we're living in. That was the wake-up call. Alex, I would even say that that person who you characterize as the yoga woman, that was at, that was at Columbia High School as well. Oh, right? no, it totally it was, was. It was, right? Of so it's just it that was. we couldn't get it on camera. <laughs> couldn't get it on camera. You know, things went down, at, you know, when we were coming up. Things happen, but it, you don't have, you didn't have cell phones or iPhones and stuff like that. No, right? but so. of course, like, I mean, we talk about high school. I mean, even though, you know, I still think of Columbia High School as a pretty, one, a great. It was progressive. It was, it was progressive. Or 1985. Relative. It was 1985, but no, I mean, there was segregation. I know mm-hmm. there was racism. I was, a, I mean, and I was hyper aware of of some of the the racism that went on but there was anti-semitism i mean there was i mean it was 1985 new jersey i mean it was Mm. i was also anti-italian you know i mean there was there was i i can only imagine it had to be very hard for you because you had to learn we had to coping skills. You, had more than, you can't coping. even call them coping skills, right? I mean, it's something all completely different than what coping skill. The word coping doesn't even give. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I was like, I learned coping skills. Like you had right. uh, no, 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 no. coping skills. is not like the word. Survival. How do you survival. survive? Survival. And and this is why. And I'm going to say this, and I'm not, I'm not going to keep you guys too long. But it's yeah, why. We went another hour. This is good. it's why I get get so, um, even in this era of desegregation, and even though I'm here in Switzerland, right? Because people can easily point the finger at me and say, but you're over there. There is still the effects of slavery and the effects of colonialism or however you want to call it, is still so present that it just uh, it's not just about how white people are reacting it's also how we treat one another within our own group right right and there are other ethnic groups that have issues as well like indians in terms of caste and we talked on we talked about this a little bit but that is the thing that i feel is the biggest challenge for black americans african americans in this present time is not how the white people are perceiving and treating, but how we treat one another. I think this is a huge, huge, huge challenge. Yeah. Because, and, and the reason why I say this is because now all of the, the barriers are so-called down, right? I mean, 
you know, relative to where they were, where my grandmother was coming up, right? But my fear is that we're not moving and understanding quick enough to see this window of opportunity to really take advantage of it. So in other words, yeah, you know, the guy in the park, he get, he, he, it was messed up what happened to him, right? But the focus should not only solely be on that, right? It has to be on what are you, what can you do now? How can you make this change happen quicker? And how can you build trust within your own family, your own community? Yeah. So that things can move a, a certain way. And I think, you know, when you asked me whether I would ever return to the United States, permanently, I don't know. But, you know, Louisiana, New Orleans is, is where I would consider my um, spiritual home. And that's where I would move to. And in fact, once the, the, the COVID, once things start to get a little bit better, I'm going to go right back to right. New Orleans. That's, you know, direct, right? But there's a lot of opportunity to do things in a way that don't involve all this other stuff. Right. Right. That don't, doesn't involve, in other words, it should be more self-directed within a community. This is what is lacking. This is what we need to do in order to change it. Absolutely. Not having some other force put us in line to actually do certain things. And that's a big wish of mine. That is uh, something that I am working diligently. So I'm on the phone all the time or emailing people all the time. Well, it's funny you say that because that's partly why I think I, um, when you were saying that, I really thought immediately of Jacaranda, the school that I, I work at in the, in the summers in Malawi. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why I always think about it is that Marie da Silva, who founded the school, in her old village, it is completely ground up, right? So in the sense of like, she has really worked in this community that started with the school. Mm. And then when she realized that, you know, 60 to 70% of the kids had HIV or AIDS and she's like, and they're having trouble getting their medicine. She's like, okay, well, we need a medical clinic here at the school. And then they built the medical clinic. Mm -hmm. Then she was like, oh, and you know what? We also need not every kid is going to get to a four-year college. So we need to have a vocational school. So we're going to build a vocational school. Oh, and yes, like people in the village in order so the girls don't get married very early, you know, because there's pressure to do Mm -hmm. that. You know what? We need to give out microloans to the women Mm -hmm. in the village Mm -hmm. so they can keep their kids going to school. And she has really from this one place, mm-hmm. been able to see community needs and be able to fill them. And with beauty and with joy and there's music and it's keeping the culture alive and the community alive. I always come back here and like, why are we not really able to do that here in the same way? It's a, it's a big question, right? Because that's a different culture. Mm-hmm. A different dynamic. American capitalism. American capitalism. It's not. And I think people are trying to bring this in by using, like saying, I want to work in sustainable, a sustainable business. Like you hear sustainability a lot, or you hear yeah. these buzzwords a lot. But I, I still say, like, we're not, we need to get to the basics. Like, all right, I have a, 
I have a, you know, a hammer and, you know, I need nails. <laughs> right. We don't even need it, like to, to be in the clouds and be, oh, I need sustainability and all this stuff. Like some of us just need the basics, right? Yeah. And I think um, that's where I am. And that's what I've been trying to do from afar, at least when we were able to travel. Like I bought, when I was with my then partner, we bought three different properties, 10 different apartment units, renovated these units. This is in New Orleans. And then we had two properties and two apartments in Harlem. Now I sold my apartment in Harlem. Uh, I have one property, which is just two units. Mm -hmm. So I didn't get half, but I learned a lot about what has to happen in order to create communities or try to, to, to support communities. And that'll be the next thing that I do. Right, which yeah. is to go back to what my original idea was, was which was to to build sustainability within the the black um, the black communities, right? right? So the, the ones that are under underserved, right? Well, so I understand, like you say that, like one of the biggest mistakes, <laughs> one of the big, I have so many mistakes and so many failures, but one of the failures of my life was after. Um, after I quit law, I actually was the community development director for East Bay Habitat for Humanity in Oakland. And mm. it was such a wonderful organization. And I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, somebody was giving me a chance, basically. They're like, you're a community development director. I'm like, I don't even know what the heck that is. Mm. And I... I did very little. I mean, I was paid a stipend of $200 a month. This was mm -hmm. my job. So I went in two days a week and, but I had no idea what I was doing. And, but you know what the mistake is? I didn't go talk to everybody. Like I, I did it to. all from book learning. I was like, oh. I read about, oh, don't make fun of me. I was failing, but I read all about oh. community development. Like I did some things. I mean, I did, yeah. I got some grants and I, and I, and I did some stuff, but I, oh my God. Like, I think about that now and I'm like, oh, Alex, what a moron. Like, I should have been in that community, listening to everybody, asking what they needed. And then just, I should have just been a conduit for them. That's all I needed to be. But I had no idea what I was doing. It is one of the biggest failures of my, of my life. If you if you had done what you're doing now, then that would have been a good start. Like just go and talk. Hey, what's up? Yeah, like that's all you got to do in the beginning. Hey, how you doing? Oh, what's going on? I'm coming to see you. Right. Listen, <laughs> but no, I was book learning. I was book learning. It was so it was so bad. Yeah, no, I was a kid and I and I didn't know and I was, you know, it was my own journey. Like I was just trying to find out what I what my truth was, what I wanted to be. And um, and Joel, who is the executive director, who was a, also a former lawyer, I think he just said, I'm a refuge for former lawyers. I mean, I think he was just helping me heal, which is just a I'm just so grateful for that because he gave me a place to land and just a place to go two days a week. So I'm very grateful for that, but it was an absolute failure. Like I, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't have the courage to, I, I was a very fear. I had fear, you know, I mean, there was fear. I was fear to, to look stupid, fear to just say, I have no idea what I'm doing, which now I would have no fear to say, I have no idea. Will somebody help me? It's age, it's maturity. Yeah. Well, 
if you've been in a position where you have gotten dumped <laughs> many times, yeah. right? You've got like, you just got, here we go again, boom. And then you, you know, you realize where you, you figure out how to uh, maneuver. And look, there are a lot of people that we can look at in the popular culture. And this is why it's great when I brought up the whole idea of Donald Trump and you guys were like, I don't think of that. I, I think what it is is that look at it from, I look at it from a different angle as well, which is there's always more than one way for someone to be, right? And not everyone is gonna, not everyone is gonna have the same experience, same point of view. And part of my journey was being able to get around that idea very, very quickly, <laughs> because if I did not, then I would not be successful here in Switzerland. That's just, you know, I spent three years learning German, or that's how long it took before I could get a job here. Yeah, wow. Right? So, so I was in class. I mean, I did stuff that I wouldn't have done in the United States, because I felt like, all right, Dave, you have no other choice. And I had to literally change my attitude about so many different things that to the point where I'm like, it does not phase me. These things do not phase me because there are other things that are so much more critical to me or for me. That doesn't mean that it's, I don't care about it. It doesn't mean that they don't exist. It's just that the focus, if I don't focus in a certain way, I'm not going to, I'm not going to continue to be able to survive. Yep. And that's just the reality. And I, I don't feel bad about saying that. I'm fortunate enough that I've been able to at least remove myself from a situation where there was constant stress and instability. And now at least I can focus on what I know I can do in order to contribute to society so that I can have an impact. Whereas I've always wanted to do that when I was in the United States. It's just that it was ducking and dodging. Right, all the time. So I'm going to most of the time and had no time to really focus on what my gift was. Yeah. Right? So anybody who is, you know, about like trying to, to, to develop themselves, I support them 100%. And anybody that's in their gift doing their thing, I'm like, you know, more power to them. So that's, that's what I will leave you guys with. All right. Well, that's good. That was a good place to end. That was you know, great. Thank you so Thank much. You, David, oh my goodness. I just, I am so grateful to know you. Thank you so much. It was very nice. Need advice? Have a question. Find us at womenbridgingthegap.com. We're happy to address your problems in our podcast, anonymously, of course. Spread the word by rating and reviewing wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next week for our discussion on class and race.